In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Jonathan Rennick about rebuilding his SaaS app with Vue.js and Tailwind CSS. We talk about working with libraries like Popper.js inside of Vue components, using portals to better encapsulate behavior, and patterns for making your components easier to reuse. We also talk about Jonathan's experience using Tailwind to build a full-featured SaaS app, what sort of component classes he extracted and which ones he didn't, as well as the sort of changes he made to the default Tailwind configuration. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 86. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode today, I just wanted to share a few quick updates on my upcoming video course, Advanced View Component Design. Last week I did a live stream where I built a wrapper around Shopify's draggable library and turned it into a really nice sortable list view component. Uh, So I'm going to share a link to that in the show notes. Definitely check that out if that sounds interesting to you. I've also finally got the full course outline totally nailed down now and I'm going to be starting to record the lessons for the course this week. So it's going to cover things like writing controlled custom input components, how to wrap third-party libraries like Stripe Elements and Chart.js, uh, using render functions and JSX in your view components, uh, writing compound components that are made up of multiple components that share secret state, uh, how to write data provider components to encapsulate logic like element query calculations, and even how to compose all these reusable components together into an application without writing a ton of application-specific code. Uh, I'm planning to send out a few free preview lessons this week and next week, so if that sounds interesting to you, definitely head over to advancedview.com and sign up for updates. Uh, That's all I got. Enjoy this discussion with Jonathan Renning about rebuilding his SaaS app with Vue.js and Tailwind. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and it's my pleasure today to be speaking with my buddy and pal, Jonathan Renning, who's been on the show a handful of times in the past. How's it going, Jonathan? I'm doing excellent. How's it going? I'm doing excellent as well. So, uh, a bunch of episodes back, we and you talked about how you were building, uh, doing like a rebuild of your SaaS app with... You know, Laravel and uh, Turbolinks and Vue and Tailwind and stuff like that. And um, you were kind of in the thick of it at the time. But you uh, launched this thing, I think, last month or February, maybe? Yep. So it's been out in the wild for a little while now. And customers are actually using it and stuff. And you got all the features built and everything's in there. So I thought it'd be a good time to sort of maybe revisit that conversation and talk a little bit about, you know, how that all uh, turned out and some lessons learned and uh and stuff like that what do you think yeah it sounds awesome i will say right off the bat though that um i believe last time we talked about this project i was uh it was a lot about turbo links so I, i'm still using turbo links but the one piece that i haven't done because i've just been able to get the actual web app out i haven't actually built the ios or the android versions of it yet so that's sort of like the next big piece in this story but uh yeah we can definitely talk about everything that i did kind of on the web side of things awesome man so um, I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but maybe it'd be worth talking a little bit about like what the app even is to kind of give people like a better picture in their head of the sort of stuff that would go into building it. So what is uh, the app that you, you just finished kind of this rebuild of? Yeah, so it's an app that I started many, many years ago, and it was actually I built it for my church. And it started off as uh, the administrator in the church was trying to solve some 
basically some issues with software that, that she was using to manage basically church membership information. And I forget what it was, but it was some sort of like old like Excel software. I want to say it was like in the like Lotus suite. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is old school stuff. And I remember the issue at the time was, you know, upgrading to a newer operating system and this old Lotus software somehow wouldn't upgrade and it was just a nightmare, right? And me being a web developer, I'm like, oh, hey, I'll, uh, I'll just create a web-based version of this for you so you can manage this all sort of just in the cloud and, and not have to deal with any of this horrible desktop software anymore. And uh, so I built it for my church and then a bunch of uh, churches that uh, from the area started hearing about it and started asking questions about it and were interested in using it as well. So I realized that I might have, might have an opportunity to kind of build it out as a SaaS sort of app one that uh, a bunch of different churches could take advantage of. So I've been kind of just, it's been a side project of mine and something that I've slowly been building out. Um, but I think I'm up to about 60 customers right now, 60 different churches and like all over the world. I have a bunch of them in Canada and the United States and Australia. Um, and it's been kind of this cool little side side uh, hustle, I guess, as people call them. Anyway, so the app itself kind of grew from being an administrative only tool and because it's web-based, there was no reason that it w had to be limited to just administrators. So I opened it up to make it possible for um, basically any member of the church to use it. And they can log in and they can view a calendar and and up share files and create photo galleries and set up schedules and view a church directory and kind of all these different types of resources that you'd share within a church and send messages and all this sort of stuff. Uh, we kind of joke... I mean, you, Adam, joke about it as it's kind of like Facebook for churches. So, <laughs> which is in a way, a lot of ways kind of true. Just it's, I think that with more of a focus, kind of an initial focus on kind of the administrative side of things. So anyway, because of that, as you've kind of learned over the years helping me work on this, Adam, it, it has a lot of pieces to it. So it's not like none of the pieces themselves, like I mentioned a calendar and photo galleries and file sharing and, and the directory and messaging and each one of these things. So it has a lot of different pieces that, you know, single apps might be focused just on like literally one piece of those things or one of those items. So it has a lot of different things, a lot of different features, but like I try not to go too deep with any of one of them. I try to just nail out like what a typical church would want to have and not try to like recreate slack within the app or, yeah. or recreate dropbox within the app i'm trying to just find like a happy medium that makes sense kind of for each church but because it's so wide there's so many different features i get a real taste for creating a whole bunch of different things and and that makes for an interesting code base yeah for sure yeah i know like every time i talk to you about it we're always talking about like some feature that you're working on and it's hilarious because it feels like it's a whole <laughs> app like you're working on like some file upload stuff and because of that you have to build like a directory tree widget or something that lets people look at nested folders and navigate things and stuff like that and yeah it's funny it's like yeah. facebook meets windows explorer meets <laughs> like god knows what else um, yeah, you like that's that's such a great like that <laughs> example right there. You think so I in this thing there's a there's this file sharing and you can create folders and then you can create nested folders and nested folders and nested folders. So I wanted the ability to like move a file from like one folder to like any other folder. I had no idea how complicated it was to actually, you know, generate a tree structure of all the folders that you have. And then on top of that, like different users can see like different folders based on permissions and taking all of that into account. Yeah, it's yeah. It was a it's been fun. 
it's one of those things where no matter how simple like a, f- a feature sounds to actually build it out properly and really do a good job of it is super hard work and complicated even for the smallest little thing feels like for sure yeah cool man so um yeah i think your app is a really interesting example for discussions like this because it touches on so many different things that are i think like pretty common to other applications that people might be building at work you know what i mean you touch on so many different things that everybody's probably familiar with like date pickers and autocomplete fields and you know all sorts of other stuff so i know that you used a view on the front end for this whole thing so i thought what would be kind of an interesting place to start the conversation would be to talk a little bit about what your approach has been there in general and um you know some of the lessons learned around the way that you've kind of put this whole thing together so maybe to get started the best place to start would be you said you're using turbo links so you're not using like client-side routing in the I call it the traditional sense, even though it's not really traditional, you know, to call like client side SPAs traditional seems like a weird thing to do, but you're not doing client side routing in like the view router uh, way that people might be used to. It's, it's client side with turbo links, I guess, but it's still really it's server side uh, routing and server side rendering and stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. That's correct. So what has your approach been to um, using view on this project, I guess. Uh, what sorts of things are you using it for? Yeah, so maybe just to expand a little bit more on the TurboLink side of it. So it is a fully, I should say, almost fully server-side rendered app, meaning it's all server-side routing, which generates uh, HTML responses from Blade files and Laravel. Um, and, I, and I did it that way because I just, I really enjoy working that way. And TurboLink sort of gives you the benefits of the speed of an SPA without actually, you know, going full on client side routing uh, and and views for everything. But with any modern day app, it's unrealistic to think that you're not going to have a significant amount of JavaScript. And, uh, and that's where, you know, Vue has kind of come in and solved that problem for me. Um, I would say that my app for pretty, this is probably how it shakes down. Most pages that are just like view pages, just like a page that say shows some content, a calendar, maybe some messaging, maybe a, a family on a in the directory or things like that, that don't have a lot of interactivity is just plain old view files or you mean like, like blade files, server blade rendered files. views. Yeah. Yes, server. Uh, yeah, server rendered views. Thank. Yeah, I got to be careful with the word view here, considering <laughs> we're talking about the view. Uh, view uh, the framework and views the server-side rendered uh, blade templates in 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 Laravel. Anyway, so um, that's how I try to do as many pages as really as possible. But whenever I need to add or do any sort of interactivity, I'm I pretty much reach for view and create components right away, and that happens a lot. So literally every single form in my entire app, and I have. A lot of them. Let me even just take a look here. At roughly how many there are? I have almost a hundred forms in my app, and I I've done them all in view. So one of the reasons why is because with Turbo Links, um, it's beneficial to do all form submissions using AJAX, uh, and the reason why is because if you take Turbo Links and the Turbo Links app over to iOS or Android and actually build it natively using the TurboLinks adapter that uh, 
that the Basecamp folks provide. Uh, it works a lot better if you do server-side form submissions. Do you mean client-side form submissions? Yeah, sorry. It's, it's better to do client-side form submissions with Ajax instead of server-side form submissions because of this whole page history um, problem that you run into on iOS and Android with kind of the... Because basically what happens is in iOS and Android, when you're using TurboLinks, when you navigate from one page to another, it creates a nice, basically, trail of each page that you go through. And you can, like, swipe or press back using kind of, like, like regular iOS, like, native sort of uh, navigation. So if you do server-side form submissions and you keep hitting submit and hitting submit and hitting submit on the same form then that messes up that history. So if you submit it using Ajax, then it kind of doesn't track that and you can kind of keep your, your page history back and forth nice and clean. So that's kind of why I opted to do everything, all my form submissions server side. But that's actually only client one side. reason. Man, I can't get it straight. <laughs> yes, client side. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad one of us is awake here. Yeah, so um, client side. So the other obvious benefit is that there's just so many reasons to do form submissions using Vue, as we've talked about previously. It's just a lot easier to organize things and kind of like do all that work client side to get all the data ready from the form and then submit it down as like a nice simple JSON um, uh, request, right? So that's, that's sort of how I got to this point. But yeah, so then my app is structured. I have in my actual JavaScript code, I have a components directory, which is made up of a whole bunch of components, which are like reusable form inputs and file uploaders and search inputs and spinners and text areas and time pickers and everything else. And then I have a whole forms directory, which is every, like, that's more like my actual app, not the stuff that I reuse. It's like one-off things. So like form for creating events and creating users and sending messages and all these different yeah. types of things. So, you've so got that's these sort of like, like my high level structure. Yeah. So you have these forms that are kind of specific to things that your app needs to do. And then those forms are kind of composed of all these different uh, kind of reusable components and stuff that you have uh, that yeah. are not really as application specific. So um, I know like from talking to you as you were working on this stuff, you built a lot of uh, pretty interesting little widgets um, like doing things like wrapping up date picker libraries or you built like a really uh, fully featured like sort of autocomplete thing like full keyboard navigation and, you know, kind of went the, the whole nine yards on that, making that whole thing work properly. So I'd be curious to know. Uh, just in general, like what some of these reusable components that you built uh, were. Yeah. So the most interesting ones, I think, are my autocomplete input, which is like your select eyes, um, kind of you, you search to select sort of drop down yeah. component. That's one that's probably was the like most challenging one that I had to build and like the one that I wanted to get right that took the most <laughs> effort to get it right. The other one I did was a, um, a time input. Uh, I looked around and there's a bunch of different time inputs, but they all felt like heavy and I wasn't really satisfied with how they work. So I built my own on that, which is in uh, some ways similar to a search input, but a little bit different. I, th those would be like, 
honestly, as far as like the actual components that I've made, like I've created a lot of wrappers for inputs. So I have like a, a text input wrapper, a text area input wrapper, um, and a password input wrapper. And I create wrappers around these things because it allows me to, instead of repeating the main reason why for a lot of my input wrappers in, is instead of repeating the label and the, the error that I get shown every time there's an error over and over and over through my app, it was simpler in my app to just create wrappers for those things to just kind of reuse that stuff because I knew that I wanted to handle it the same way every yeah. single time and have it look the same way. So then you can just pass in like the label as a prop or the current error as a prop and you just have exactly. like one tag in the actual form for that. Yeah, exactly. And if you omit, and if you just yeah omit the uh, label prop, it just doesn't show the label. And if there is no error, well, no error gets shown, yeah. right? So that worked out really well. I was kind of nervous. It felt like a very react sort of thing to do, but uh, it worked out great because it just simplified my pages and my forms a lot because it was just li literally totally redundant to have it repeated every mm -hmm. single time. I created a, a drop-down component, so that was an interesting one as well. Uh, something that I expected to be simple turned out pretty tricky. We can talk about that later too. Getting you know working with the Popper library. Uh, I created a uh, oh this these were interesting. I created a single file input and a multiple file input, uh, which I think my design decisions on these were kind of different than what most people did. So we could even chat about those. But kind of the main thing I did around my file inputs is the file inputs themselves were not responsible for actually doing the file uploads. It would just take care of selecting the files and showing a nice UI around it. So that was cool. And then I created a modal, which was based on some of the modal work that you've done around Vue. And then I ended up flushing that out a little bit further. So yeah, that's kind of gives you a bit of a sense of the type of components I made. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you actually, like a lot of the things that you talked about there, like um, an autocomplete thing or like a time picker or uh, even like a drop down, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's tons and tons of ex existing libraries out there uh, that try to solve these sorts of problems. Like not all of them are necessarily written for view and stuff like that. Uh, maybe they're in jQuery or maybe they're just vanilla JavaScript or whatever. But I'd be curious to know like how much time you spent kind of looking into existing solutions to see if there was something that you could just kind of use off the shelf or wrap up as a view component and uh, what the deal breakers and stuff that you ran into were that sort of motivated you to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, with things like, you know, a drop down or an autocomplete for your project. Yeah, I, um, I looked at a lot of components, but one sort of decision I had made at the beginning of the project was to not use jQuery at all. And I found that a lot of the more solid battle tested components that exist out there are written in J with jQuery. Um, and the reason why I, I tried to, or I didn't want to use jQuery is because of the way that jQuery gets instantiated kind of at the beginning of a page load when using turbo links, that's, there's not a full page refresh, right? So you run into some issues with jQuery plugins and you can maybe get one working, but if, sort of felt like every jQuery mm -hmm. plugin that I try to use, it ended up being a bit of a battle to Got get it. those things to, yeah. So, so yeah, a lot of jQuery stuff is listening for like the document ready event or whatever, right? And TurboLinks exactly. only fires that on the very first page though. The rest of the time you get like TurboLinks loaded or TurboLinks ready or whatever. So if that's not configurable in the plugin and it's just kind of hard coded to yep. work that way, then you're sort of screwed. 
Yeah, and then there's more than that. Like I find that a lot of the jQuery plugins that exist out there are not really optimized for like modern packaging systems. So I work with um, Laravel Mix, which is basically just a, a wrapper around um, Webpack. Webpack, thank you. Yeah, it's a wrapper around Webpack. So I've I build up most of myself that way. But every time I grab a jQuery plugin, it feels like, okay, how on earth do I actually get this into my whole build process and what I really didn't want to end up with is like the old classic header which has 14 different JavaScript includes and and 14 different CSS file includes and uh, so I wanted to that kind of bugged me I really wanted to just to have that a lot cleaner so you know what maybe like a good thing to mention I think that we we sort of have an implying but I think it's probably good to call out is that it sounds like you're (laughs) trying to be pretty intentional about um, making sure that there's only like one way to write JavaScript in your app, right? Which is like everything that you do is view and view components. Even if like a view component happens to be powered by um, a jQuery uh, library, like behind the scenes, like maybe you're wrapping something up, sure. But at like the the top level, there's not like some jQuery poking out and some view poking out and some vanilla JavaScript poking out. It's like everything uses like a view API. Like that's the way that you do JavaScript stuff with your app, which is that, does that sound accurate? A hundred percent. That's exactly, that's exactly it because I just find that otherwise it just becomes way too unwieldy and impossible to maintain. And it, uh, you start getting weird side effects when you have like, yeah, you just want like one paradigm, right? Like that's exactly. Yeah. And I totally and, agree, and, I was, and that, that's the way I try to build it. Everything too, it depresses me to no end. If I have to, if I feel like, <laughs> I mean, you never have to do it, but if you're on a project where there's ten different ways to write JavaScript, some stuff is like jQuery plugins with a script tag at the bottom of the template that targets an ID and does something, and other stuff is just a custom view component. It's just, it just feels like gross. It just feels like you've lost the battle already. So, I think yeah, it's definitely and, worth it to 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 really push on trying to keep that like single paradigm in the app. hundred percent. And I will say that that was a challenge. That was a real challenge. And I, I think what I noticed as I was working on all these components, my own components or trying to implement components is that I realized that there's in the JavaScript space, there's a lot of really good specialized libraries out there. Um, and when I say specialized, I mean specialized, not necessarily on the UI side, but specialize in trying to do something very specific for that you could then use in a UI component. Yeah. So I'm thinking about things like Popper JS, which is, you know, it helps you have drop downs and, and things in your app and, and yeah. it basically helps align them, right? Yeah. So and there's other things. Yeah. I think it'd be Go worth ahead. talking about that actually in like a bit more detail because um, I think some of the, the things you have to do there are kind of interesting. Like Popper JS is a library. They call it like a positioning engine, I think is what they call it in their documentation. So it's a tool for basically calculating offsets relative to like other elements and having those update properly as you like resize the window or scroll and do stuff like that, right? So the motivation for this thing existing, for the most part, people are using it for tooltips and stuff, I think. So like Bootstrap 4, they use Popper.js as a dependency for their own tooltips because... A lot of the time when you're rendering these elements, you don't actually want to render the DOM node right next to the thing that you're actually decorating with the tooltip. A lot of the time because of like Z index issues or 
you know, weird positioning stuff, you actually want these things to be rendered at like the end of the body um, so that they are kind of in their own little space, but positioned absolutely so that they're, they look like they're in the right place on the screen. Um, so Popper.js is not like a view library or anything, right? There's nothing view specific about it, but you used it for uh, your dropdowns and like the, the dropdowns that appear when you do like your search inputs and stuff like that. Uh, so what did that kind of look like to use a library like Popper to power like a view component like that? Because you don't actually leak anything about Popper outside um, of that component, right? Yeah, it was, so Popper was a little bit tricky. I had to learn it and that was a little bit kind of scary at first because I didn't really get it, but it actually didn't take me that long to get it working. And now, as you mentioned, it totally just exists in my dropdown component and my search input, which is like an autocomplete. So I really liked it and I think it kind of allowed me to, so that was, I think like what Popper does for a search input or for a dropdown like I think that functionality is often like you look at these existing libraries that do, you know, like a, an autocomplete library or a dropdown library. And a lot of the effort that's put into those libraries is getting things like dropdown placement, right? So that's, I think often the draw to look at a third party component instead of building your own component, because you're like, oh, I, that part is just too complicated. I can't solve it. I'm going to just rely on somebody else's, you know, component. And I just have no choice because this is just too tricky of a problem to solve. Mm. And the thing that sucks about that is you get all this baggage with it that you don't necessarily want, like their vendor CSS and the layout of their DOM elements and the configuration options that they have in terms of how something should work. When really the only thing that you're really trying to offload, because you're not sure how to solve it yourself or you don't have the budget or time to solve it yourself is like reliably getting this positioning stuff to work and understanding all the different edge cases involved, making sure that you solve them on every friggin' browser and mobile browsers. <laughs> exactly. All this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So that's why when I could pull in Popper, which is a highly popular uh, package on, on NPM, um, it allowed me to basically create my own components that have these dropdowns and I could just like totally not think about that and just know that it was going to like reliably work. But it was even better than that because I don't know if you remember Adam, but you, you were helping me one day and I was trying to get these dropdowns working inside of a modal. So, um, you know, it's not uncommon. You have, it's easy to have a dropdown just on a regular page, but I had this situation where I wanted to have a modal and then have one of these search inputs, you know, as uh, an input inside a form on a modal. And we were running into these really challenging problems. Like when the page really, sh you know, shrinks down to a small size, you know, how does, how does the library, how does the search input know where to put that dropdown? And what we wanted to do is we wanted to say within the context of a modal, which is scrollable. So if you imagine a modal open with a very long, or a, say a somewhat long form in that modal, what you might have on a smaller screen is you might actually have the content within that modal, the form within that modal become a scrollable area. This is not uncommon in modals, right? So what would happen then is if you had the drop down in there from one of these search inputs or for, you know whatever, if it's a drop down or a search input or whatever it is, what you really wanted to do is bust outside of the 
actual modal if there is space below, right? Not unlike any sort of native control that you get in HTML. Like a browser will let a select, like a drop down with all the options, it'll actually let it pop out of the entire browser. Like yeah. we've talked about that before. Like if you had a, a whole list of countries, for example, and it was really, really long, it'll actually pop outside of the entire browser. But anyway, so we're, we were, I was dealing with this one specific problem and what was happening by default is my dropdown was like trying to show up in this scrollable area in my modal because that's like the default behavior. But I'm like, no, I actually want it to pop out of that and use all the space available to it. So what was really cool is we learned messing around with Popper that it actually had an option that allowed us to specify what sort of area it would try to con like contain itself to. So you could choose the body or you could choose the scroll area. And in certain situations, you'd want the, the scroll area. In certain situations, you'd want the body. Anyway, that's a, a whole bunch of background to basically say when you build your own component, you may run into situations or sorry, when you use a third party component, you may run into these really annoying situations and they happen all the time. Believe me, I'll give another example after this, but you'll run into these situations where this third party library has made a choice on some type of functionality and it's now messing with your unique situation. So in my situation there, I had a modal and this dropdown was, you know, not operating properly. Well, it was because it was my own component and because I was using this awesome Popper library, I literally just went into the documentation, realized that Popper supported this way of defining how the context of the dropdown would be handled. And I literally just updated that. And now it, I have the choice to handle, to choose how that gets handled, which made me quite happy. Um, however, I use, I have another situation that I have in modals where I show a date picker, which is, I use pick a day, which is a very popular date picker library. And I run into situations and I, I think this is, I don't know if I have this one. Yeah. I think what happens is if I have the drop down and I hit escape, um, it causes like my modal to close or I something like that. I can't remember exactly the situation, but basically I, I don't have control over that library. So I'm running into like these weird edge cases when I use it within a modal where it's like not working quite how I want. And it's just kind of like a frustrating UI problem that's like hard to like fix because it's not my code. But anyway, so I think what I've found is by creating my own components in view, it actually takes, a, you know, in a lot of situations, it actually doesn't take that much to make exactly the component you want. Like a lot of my view components, and I use like the classic view component where you have your 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 template and your scripts kind of all in the, what are they called? The view? The single file view components. Thank you. So I use those a lot. And like even my most complicated component, which is my search input, I think it's, I'm looking here, it's 143 lines of code. Including which is the like, and there's like, and the script stuff, which is, yeah, that's yeah. right. And there's line returns and I'm, I'm not being like, I'm not being careful, like to, to keep the line length short. Like, so it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. The whole thing, 150 lines of code for like a super important component that is like totally tailored to my app. And then by doing it this way, one, I get a leverage view, which is amazing, you know, to work with the build components. I just find building components with view is just such a nice way to build components. I remember back in the day working with jQuery and just how awful. And, and you know what? jQuery was a huge step forward, let's be honest. But it was still, it took a lot of effort to build components with jQuery. A lot of like selectors and trying to 
find, you know, selectors everywhere basically and trying to keep all the state and everything in, you know, in sync. It was a nightmare, right? So view makes that really easy. And you can still then in situations where you have some complex problem, pull in a library like Popper to help you do something that you don't really want to try to solve yourself. So yeah, yeah, it's worked out pretty awesome. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development productivity and ship to production more frequently. CodeShip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. CodeShip is a great fit for your team, whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps, or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest continuous integration tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market. And CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeShip a try and sign up for free today at CodeShip.com. I've been a user of CodeShip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. So I guess like maybe what would be worth talking about a little bit is just sort of the technical details behind like the implementation of doing that, like building a view component that wraps up um, another component that needs to, you know, manipulate the DOM and stuff like that, because Popper is going to control where some element actually gets rendered and stuff, which can feel a little, feel a little weird when you're used to sort of view driving all that stuff. So what does that actually look like um, implementation wise? What does it look like to actually, like, what is, what are you doing with Popper? Where are you instantiating it? Uh, do you have to worry about weird things like memory leaks or how you're worrying about cleaning that stuff up? Uh, you know, just making sure that they play nicely together. Yep. So it's, I'll take my dropdown component as maybe a good example, a little simpler. So a dropdown being you have some type of button. When you click that button, it shows a list of links or whatever, right? So the way that that works, that component works is, it, again, it's a single file view component. And right at the top of it, I do the old import popper. And then what happens is I have an event. So when you click on the actual button, it calls a toggle event. Just pretty simple. Method. Click event. Yep. Just yeah. a simple method. Exactly. And then what I do is I, I check to see if it's, if it's already displayed, I hide it. But if it, if it's not displayed, that's when I, I actually um, set up popper at that moment. So, and that works pretty good. So what I do is I say, okay, if, if I need to show it, then I say, create a new popper, and I save that popper instance to my actual view um, data. Uh, I don't know what you'd call that. I guess your data property or whatever. Yeah. So you just so, and, so you have access to it for later. Exactly. But popper expects a reference to the button because that's how it works. Well, it actually expects a reference to two elements, one being the button that you're clicking on, because it needs to know how to put yeah, the, whatever like, you're going to... What know, is the reference yeah. element that you want to position this thing relative to? Correct. Yep. 
and then the actual drop down because it's required for actually showing that item and moving it around, right? So, so in the way I handle that is basically within my view component in the actual uh, template, I create two refs. One ref is for the button itself and the other ref is for the dropdown. So then I just say, okay, so I just do this dot popper equals new popper, and where the first argument is the ref for the button, so this dot refs dot button, and the second argument is the ref for the dropdown, and then the third argument in with popper is whatever options you want to give it. You know, so you can so that's like whether it and, should be uh, underneath or to the left or to the right, or whether it's like centered underneath or right aligned underneath, like all that sort of stuff. Exactly. And those are off. Those are just defaults because the whole purpose of popper is to move it around based on space. Right. But you can give it sensible defaults. Right. So my drop down is bottom end. You want it displayed at the bottom of whatever your button is at the end. So, you know, a line right aligned basically. Yeah. So you can give it that kind of setting. And then you can get also get we talked about earlier about the overflow boundary stuff that you can set those kind of preferences as well. So, so that's it. So and with like the rest right? stuff. Um, for people yep. who aren't familiar, I guess, like refs is a feature of view that lets you basically tag an element in a template so that you can grab a reference to the actual DOM node like later on, right? So if you have ref equals button and ref equals dropdown, but then when you say this dot dollar refs dot button, that's giving you like the actual DOM node, the same thing you would get doing like document dot query selector all for that element basically, right? And that's kind of like the secret sauce to the interoperability for the most part, between view components and non-view libraries. Because most of these libraries that you work with, there's a lot of even jQuery ones where you, you can pass a selector to them and they'll go ahead and do like whatever. But most of these things will also let you pass the DOM node directly. So I've seen a lot of people do things in view components where you, you might add like a class and then use jQuery in the view component to to pass in that class to the plugin and the plugin goes and looks for that dom node which is most of the time like unnecessary most of the time you can just use a ref instead so you don't have this weird like indirection you know what i mean this sort of like um well here's the class that i added now you go on a treasure hunt to find the element with that class instead you can just be like here's the element pass it in directly which is a little bit cleaner um yeah so that's kind of the backstory on how the ref stuff works but yep so um, the one tricky piece with all this is, um, is it, uh, I don't even know really how to explain it, but when I'm basically showing, so at the point of toggling the button, I need to actually show the dropdown. So that's done using a V show. But before, so behind the scenes, v, view is basically showing that, and I'm not even sure exactly what V show does. I don't know, is that a display Yeah, V show is, a, is toggling display none. And then VF right. is removing it from the DOM or adding it to the DOM. Right. So when you when I toggle and the V show gets changed and the actual dropdown appears, I um, I actually have to wait a second before I can initiate Popper because otherwise Popper doesn't see it or it doesn't know where it is. And there was so yeah. there's this. So it has to actually be rendered by the browser even if you never see it with your eyes because it happens so fast, but Popper needs to be able to know like where did the browser actually put this? What were its actual dimensions? So I can calculate like where it should go and, and how it should work. Yeah. So what does it look like to try and make sure yeah. that you don't have that issue? Yeah. So it's basically a built-in function in view called next tick. 
next tick T I C K. Yeah. Basically just all it is, that's all it is. It's a single, it's a, it's a method that doesn't take any arguments other than just a callback. And that callback, you basically just put in there, whatever you want to have happen once that quote unquote next tick occurs. Yeah. So it's some sort of like next, I, I don't even know. Do you know exactly what it is? It has uh, to do with the rendering. Yeah. It's basically once it's gone through, like after this kind of update cycle is done, basically as soon as it's done, process the next batch of like dom updates um run this code so you know that things are in like a good state basically yeah yeah so that's the only that's actually the only real tricky piece of the whole component and then the only other thing it does is when it when you uncheck the drop down i i basically call popper.destroy which is a method that popper provides to basically do some garbage cleanup or whatever you want. Yeah, to call just so it. that you're not instantiating a new popper and leaving it hanging in memory every single time you open the drop down, basically. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And what's really cool about this design is like this drop down is like a self contained component that has a button and a drop down. So if you were to have, and I have this in my app, I have a whole list of files, and every one of those files has a little drop down on the right hand side that I can click on and like view, like, you know, and do something with it, maybe edit or delete or rename or whatever, right? So what's nice is in with with working this way, each one of these is self-contained and it kind of like doesn't mess up, doesn't mess with any other instances of those components on the page. It's just like each one kind of is responsible for itself and you can kind of use it as many times as you need throughout your app. Yeah. So that actually brings me to a topic that uh, I think is interesting to talk about too and is related um, which is how your modals work. So I think like maybe a good thing to talk about first is how I think I've seen a lot of people do modals in view apps is modals are like a classic example of something where you really want the modal content to be rendered at the end of the body, right? Because of uh, just making sure that you're not getting affected by parent positioning things or CSS transforms that are happening to a parent that could screw up your modal and weird stuff like that. So a lot of time the way I've seen people implement this stuff is maybe you have a delete button and the purpose of the delete button is to open like a confirmation dialog where you can say like, yes, I'm sure I want to delete this item or this record in the, in the UI. And what, what I've seen a lot of people do and what I did originally when I was first learning Vue as well was implement that sort of thing using events, like global events. So you would do something like click the delete button, your root view instance would be like listening for an event like delete button clicked and that would come along with like a reference to the thing that you wanted to delete or whatever and that would go off and basically fire another event that a modal component somewhere else in your dom like where you maybe you put this modal component at the bottom of the body is listening for events that are saying hey open the modal and here's like the thing that someone wants to confirm deletion of and it would open so th i've seen this pattern a lot where people sort of have this communication between components happening uh, through global events and kind of scattering things all over the app, which seems like a necessity um, if that's the only way you can think to solve that problem. But it's kind of annoying because really you want that delete button to be like more explicitly connected to that modal in some way, right? Like you, you want to be able to more directly say like this modal happens as a result of clicking this button and kind of keep them all packaged together so it's more portable. So um, you have a solution that you used on your app to to this problem that uses like another kind of cool library that I think is worth talking about. So why don't you talk a little bit about how 
you've done this sort of thing uh, in your app and how it's different from that sort of global event driven approach. Yeah. So there's, yeah. Okay. So there's sort of two pieces to it and the way I wanted to do it in my app kind of, um, you can kind of decide how far you want to go with it. So first you have the problem of where your modal actually gets rendered on the screen. And, um, that I figured was like an impossible problem to solve. Kind of like what you just described. You kind of have to like reach up to the parent and then the parent shows something. But then I believe you pointed me, Adam, to this library called View Portal. And View Portal, and I believe this is actually worth mentioning that I believe portals are even a like baked in feature of React. Is that, Yeah, they're that, like a first yeah. class React feature. Yeah, so this uh, View Portal library is pretty cool because what it allows you to do is you can basically define these I'm going to call them, they're called portals, but you define these places in your layout, in your app somewhere. So in the actual like DOM structure somewhere. So I have it in my base layout blade file. So right at the very bottom, I have something called a, they're called portal targets. And you can have multiple portal portal targets and you give them names. So what I do is when an actual, so in my actual model or sorry, modal component, when the actual modal gets rendered, the template itself for that modal is wrapped in a portal tag. And that portal tag, you define one of the attributes or one of the props on it is what portal area that you defined previously in your layout, your portal target, which one of those to display it in. And then what happens is it'll take that and actually move that chunk of code even though you might be rendering that component somewhere completely different in the app, in your app, it'll take that modal and actually render it in the portal. So that works really, really good for, for modals because you can basically create this modal component, open the modal, and instead of it opening wherever you created the component, it opens it in the bottom of your page outside of all the other HTML and whatever else that you've already got there. So that works really, really well. Uh, and then you can even do like transitions around that. So you could have it show it in the portal and then like do a transition so that when it opens, it does like a fade in effect or some type of grow or, or, or whatever. So that, that works really, really well. So then that was sort of like step one, solving that problem. But I wanted to like, and maybe, you know, I don't know if this is a good design practice or not, but what I really wanted in my app is that when I say put a button somewhere. I wanted to be able to place it. I wanted to be able to create a component, say, let's say to delete a file. I wanted to be able to create a button to delete a file and then have that button component itself know, or I should say that delete file component. I wanted it to both provide a button and the modal all sort of in one view component. So the way you can do this and I should say on top of that is I wanted my my root level element for that component to be the button. And the reason why I wanted that is because I wanted to be able to apply, apply classes and stuff so that I could style that button however I wanted in that situation. Because you can imagine maybe you have two different ways to delete a user or a document or a file or whatever. And maybe in one situation, the delete file option is listed in a dropdown, which I totally do. I, uh, I have uh, the ability to click a dropdown and delete a file. But the way I style that delete file 
button in the dropdown might be different than if I'm on a page that's dedicated to that file yeah. and I want to just like delete it. I might have like a big red delete button or something, right? So what I really wanted is I wanted a view component that as my root level element was a button that I could style however I wanted. And then I just wanted that component when I clicked that button to fire off to the modal and say, hey, I was clicked and then the modal would pop open, right? But I wanted the modal code to be inside that component as well. Now, if you know anything about view components, you know that you're not allowed to have two root level elements in a view component. You, so that meant that I had to put my whole modal inside a button. Well, if you follow like HTML or CSS, like the actual W3 standards, it's not valid to put really any block level element yeah, inside of a like button, Yeah, you can't right? put a div inside a button. <laughs> like you technically can, and I think people do it all the time, but like as far as rules go, like you're not supposed to. Yeah. But what's interesting is the way I did it is you have, I created these, these buttons and these button components. And then within the button, I did render my entire modal. But because I'm using portals, that modal never actually gets rendered in that button. It always gets rendered at the bottom of the page because the portal shows up and it doesn't ever render it within the button itself. It renders it at the bottom of the page. So this has created like a really, really nice, and I use this pattern throughout my whole app and it worked out really nice. So I can basically drop in these buttons or whatever, wherever I want. When I click it, it pops up in a modal and I can do something with it. And uh, yeah, it just kind of took this portal magic to kind of make that yeah. happen. Yeah, I think that pattern is amazing because uh, it has like two really powerful parts to it, right? One is it totally removes this need for um, this global event style communication from a button to a modal that's totally disconnected somewhere distant in the DOM, which clutters up your whole app with all this kind of leaking knowledge uh, about how this thing has to work, right? And just kind of couples everything in this gross way. So by being able to put it all in one component, you just literally drop that delete file component anywhere you want. And when you click it, a modal is going to open that's going to confirm it. Like, end of story. Like, it's just one little tag you got to drop somewhere to get this whole experience. And it's all totally self-contained and portable, which is really cool. And yeah, and I should actually mention one... Oh, sorry, go ahead, finish. I was going to say, like, the other thing that's cool about it, which is obviously related, but this whole concept of portals is is basically a strategy for kind of decoupling your component hierarchy from the DOM tree structure. So... Yeah, it makes sense that like the modal is like a subcomponent of like the button from a view component structure sort of sense because like it's triggered by the button, you know? It it makes sense that the button sort of encapsulates this as a child, but of course that doesn't make sense in the actual HTML. And without a pattern like portals, you have no you have to choose one of those two kind of mental models, right? But portals lets you basically structure the dom however you want to structure the dom and then structure the hierarchy of your components however you want to structure those and allows you to sort of optimize for both cases instead of having to make weird trade-offs yep yep it, and it worked out really well i i i did have one page in the app that i thought it was going to be a problem because i basically had a page that had like like one particular page listed like thousands of different files or up you know could be thousands of different files and I wanted each one of those to have a tiny little X beside it to delete. And I was worried about the performance that this would would that this would have by having all of them on there. Because I'm like, okay, well, each one of those components is a button to delete the file. Plus, each one of those has this modal in it. And I was wondering, like, what that would do to the page. 
But the reality is at each one of those buttons on the page literally has nothing other than the button because the modal never like the modal inside it never actually gets rendered by view unless you click on it. So um still only one would, modal at a time basically. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So with these so port- yeah, that's another thing with the whole portal target thing that's worth talking about is like you don't have to have a portal target for every modal on the page. You can just have one portal target. It's like, this is where modals go because only one modal can be rendered at a time. Anyways, then whichever one is showing is going to fill up that slot. Uh, otherwise nothing's going to be there. So you can have like one portal for rendering modals, another portal for rendering tooltips. Basically, as long as there's only one of a specific type of thing displayed at a time, they can all share the same sort of portal target. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I did with that, pattern is my root level button. I don't have like a default text within it. So it's not like I have like add person or delete file as like a default text. Literally what I do is I treat it more like a regular button that I actually have to define it. So I, what I do is I use the default slot and whatever you pass through to that default slot is whatever gets rendered within that button, which is really useful because like in some situations I have just text, delete, whatever. But in other situations, you might try to be a little more, have a little more design to it. You might pass through an SVG file that's got some text beside it that you're aligning using Flexbox and whatever else. So that's using that kind of really gave me a lot of power even, so not only the the styling of the button itself, but also a lot of freedom over how I, what content I put within that button. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. We want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. One of the other topics I wanted to get into, maybe the last one that we'll get into since uh, we've been going for for a while now and I think we're going to have a lot to say about this topic too, is um, just general strategies that you used uh, to make your components sort of easier to reuse throughout your application. So you didn't have to kind of duplicate logic around a bunch of specific instances of things that, you know, were were otherwise uh, similar. So, you know, using features like slots and stuff in view and, you know, different types of props and stuff. Um, so I'd be curious to know, like, what some of the components you have there, um, 
which ones you have that are kind of like commonly reused with different sort of looks and feels and different types of content and stuff and some of the strategies that you used to uh, to make that possible without a bunch of like redundant code or a bunch of duplication yeah so i use slots and i use scoped slots in view per, like really aggressively because any time that i could pass through some content for a component and not have to like bake that into the component is like was a real win for me so i'll give you like some examples so for my search input you can imagine you got this input and when you go to it you start typing something in right and then based on whatever data provider it has it's going to start listing out whatever search whatever things it finds in the search right and so sometimes i might be searching for countries or provinces and another time I might be searching for users and what I wanted to be able to do in those situations is use the same component I wanted to use the search input for both the the country search and the user search but the way I wanted them to render had to be totally different so for example the way that uh, I'm gonna I actually don't have a country search I have a state slash provinces or region search so what happens is when you search that one, I wanted to list whatever provinces or regions it found, and then all the way on the like on the right aligned and kind of like a, a nicer soft gray, I wanted to show what country it was. Because in my app, and when you when you enter an address, you don't have to go and do the old, you know, choose your country first and then choose your region. You can just choose your region and it gets the country automatically from that. So Ontario, then it's Canada, New York, USA, right? So I wanted that drop down to have a custom layout a custom way and 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 people even go further you you could have had the country logo in there if you want maybe an svg of the logo or not the logo the flag so you so i wanted that but then on when i was rendering people like users i had like different situations i maybe wanted different information shown i might want i maybe wanted to have their name and maybe their address or maybe their name and their age or whatever else so I wanted to have the ability to customize this search input, even though the, the goal of that component was the same, list some data and search through it and then allow me to choose one of them. I wanted the way the, the actual results, you know, the way the results were rendering to be customized. So I used scope slots for that and, uh, and that worked really, really well. Um, the, other, the other way I, I kind of reused com content was in my modal. So I tried not to bake, like, basically, I, I try to bake almost nothing into my modal from a content perspective. So if you think of, like, your traditional modal, you know, what a lot of people will have is in the top, you'll have some sort of header that says a title, and then you'll have some type of body, and then you'll have some type of footer where you put some buttons or whatever, right? But depending on the situation, you may not need a title, or you may not need that footer or whatever. So I didn't want to, like, force myself to have to follow that pattern where I had to give it like a title every time and a body every time. So what I did for all my modal components is I have my base modal, which is responsible for handling, you know, showing the modal, putting it into the proper portal and, you know, handling the animation of like opening and closing and kind of some of the trickery around say hit and escape, because if you hit escape, you want the modal to close or clicking off the modal, you want it to close. And, and there's even some other like more tricky stuff because there's some interesting bugs in uh, older versions of iOS or even not even older versions of iOS that have some, some issues around 
what happens with modals um, when your your body is overflow hidden. Anyway, so I kind of like took all that like complicated stuff and I threw it all in the modal. But then my, the modals that I actually use in my app basically have all the content in them and they're just wrapped with this modal component, which kind of takes care of all that that nastiness that you got with a modal. So, and that worked really good because I had tons of flexibility around how I could, whatever I wanted in those modals, I had tons of flexibility for each situation that was not restricted to anything because the modal was so generic. So I feel like kind of like following that pattern where the components that you make, make them like as generic and general as possible. Let them focus on whatever it is that it like really needs to handle that like kind of its core, you know, value. So in the search input, like its value is searching, providing an input and showing a drop down of results. And the modal is handling this whole like displaying uh, this pop-up window, if you want to call it that, and, and handling the open and closing and everything there. But then the actual content and how you actually display that content, leave that to whatever component is consuming that parent component and leaving yourself really flexible to like modify it wherever you need it, however you need it. Yeah, I think that's uh, the way to go for sure. I think um, I think the, the really like powerful idea there that uh, that was really important for me when I first learned it was basically this idea of components being the primary way to reuse code in Vue, right? Like it's easy to think about like, hey, I have this modal and I want to make like a more specific one. Is there like a way to like extend that component with like a more specific component? And I think Vue does have a way to extend components, but I've literally never used it because I don't think it's the the right way to do it. Same with like mixins. I never use mixins in Vue because I don't think that's the best way to have code reuse, right? Instead, you want to use component composition. So if you have a modal that's like really generic, just handles the the things that every modal has, which is there's a content area where you can put stuff and it handles the escape key, the open close, the click away, that sort of thing. If you want to make like a more specific version of that modal, the right way to do that is to create a new component that's like, you know, confirmation modal or something. And the root node of that component is your other component modal component and then you put all the more specific stuff kind of in that slot and if you wanted to extend that confirmation dialogue with like a delete file confirmation dialogue again the right way to do that is to create a new component where the root element of that is the regular confirmation dialogue you know and it's just kind of this like nested component like russian doll sort of approach and it makes sense as soon as you see it but i found it to be kind of unintuitive at first because it didn't feel like it felt weird that a confirmation modal had a generic modal inside of it. You know, it feels like it should be under it or extending it in some way, but really this like idea of like composing things out of more generic parts is like the right way to, to think about kind of sharing this code and reusing stuff. Another one I'd be interested in talking about maybe is, um, just quickly is your dropdown component in, in terms of how, how that's structured to be uh, reused. Did you have like two slots for that, like a click area and then like a display area or how did you set that up? Cause I'm guessing like you have different, like sometimes the, the dropdown click target might be a button. Sometimes it might be just an arrow. Sometimes it might look like a link or, and maybe the dropdown area could render totally different styled content yep. too, right? Yep. Yeah, so that one was a little bit trickier. Um, and the reason why is because 
Um, you got these different events that are going on that when you do something, you need to like affect. So when you toggle somebody, how, how do I describe this properly? So maybe I'll just explain kind of how I built it and then kind of maybe that'll kind of work this out. So the actual component is made up of two pieces. It's made up of a button and it's made up of a drop down. And both of those are, are named or slot or scope slots, right? So there's a, there's a, a button that you can create and there's a drop down. So what you do is you create this new drop down component in your markup and then you define within that you define a button and the actual drop down and then within the with so the button itself since it's a scoped slot um, gets replaced when it actually renders so what you have to do is you need to apply events that from the actual drop down component you need to apply those you know, I want to say from the parent, but it's kind of weird when you think about it. It's, it's, it's the child really. It's, yeah. it's, it's a child really. Exactly. But anyway, so that's how it worked with works with uh, scope slots. What you can do is you can pass these, these props back to whatever it is that's implementing that component. And you can use those where you're rendering those, those, so, those elements. Yeah. So what sort of bindings are you passing back to the, to the button slot basically like things that you should be applying yeah so in for my drop down it was pretty simple it was just the uh let me look here it was just the click event that's all it was got it so you so, basically pass back like a bag of event handlers that's like saying um, that's right make sure that you stick these on whatever you want to be your button because yeah this is where the child component is going to be toggling the show or hide of the the thing basically that's right that's right because i wanted like i wanted the drop down component to be responsible for actually handling the showing and the hiding right but i wanted the the actual component when it's getting implemented and used in my app i wanted it to have like full control over how that button was created so that button could be an image that button could be an svg that can that button could be uh, anything you really anything you wanted yeah and all that mattered was that the events from the parent were properly assigned or from, you know, from the actual base component were properly applied. So that was one piece. And then the actual drop down, I wanted the exact same thing. I wanted you to be able to create whatever kind of drop down with whatever kind of styles you want or for that drop down in that unique situation, but then still have all that functionality be passed back. So in that situation, I had events and I had actions. So um, the, the action that I had was a closed um, option. So what would happen is you'd have this list of say links and when you clicked any one of those links, I wanted the actual drop down to close at the point that you clicked one of them. Right. Cause that's normally the, that's how a drop down yeah. works. Right. But as you might not want to do option, that in like every drop down. Right. That's right. There are situations where you want that and there's actually situations where you don't want that. Like for example, so really if you have like a select menu that's visible in your drop down when you want if someone clicks that, you don't want it to just close the drop down because it's listening for click events or something on the parent. Right. So basically, I pass back this bag of actions and events, and you can sort of apply whatever ones you need, kind of when you need them as appropriate. So that worked really, really well. That was sort of like I actually kind of came to that pattern. I think basically you helped me kind of work that out near the end of this project, and uh, I kind of wanted to go back and apply that sort of style 
in other places as well. Like for example, even in my, um, my modal, like with the buttons, you could totally use this type of approach as well, which allows you to little, have a little bit more control over, um, how this stuff, it's a little bit more work when you do it this way, but it kind of gives you like full control over how you build stuff up and whatever else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense. Cool. So actually I said that was the last thing that we were going to talk about, but I think uh, the actual conversation here has only been a little under an hour. So maybe we can squeeze in like one more topic uh, because I think it'd be interesting to talk about, which is that you used uh, Tailwind CSS, which is the CSS framework that me and you kind of released last October. Um, And you used that to build this whole app. And a lot of the decisions in kind of making Tailwind came out of you using it to build this app and making sure that we could create something that was working for both my projects and your projects. So I think it'd be uh, useful to do maybe just like a quick, quick little recap on like how it has worked out for you and um, talk about like some of the questions that a lot of people have when they talk about like, well, how does this end up playing out when you build a full app with this and, you know, sorts of problems that people are worried about and, just kind of talk about them a little bit in terms of your app since you got this thing finished and it's not a small app by any means. Um, so yeah, maybe the first thing to talk about would be, um, what components did you end up building in your app? So there's always this kind of discussion about like using all utilities for things or using add apply to like create components and stuff and, and when to do that. So now that you built this big thing with all sorts of UI that gets reused or things that look the same in a bunch of different places. I'm curious to know like what things you created uh, components for and what things you didn't create components for maybe. Yeah. If I'm honest, I created components like very, very, very little. Let me look here. What I did create components were for were one buttons. Buttons are an obvious choice for components because you have buttons all over the place and you kind of have, you want to have a consistent style for your buttons. So I basically have like a small, medium, large, extra large button with a bunch of different color options. And, and that was pretty much all for my buttons. Um, I created what I called, it was, <laughs> I called it a data grid. So it wouldn't, because I made it as a component, but it's basically table styles, mm-hmm. which if I'm honest, I'm not sure if I loved it. Like it's not that long of a component. It's about 33 lines of code. And I used add apply and applied all just basically um, all tailwind utility classes to it. That's how I built it. But I did find with my tables that I often felt in certain situations, like in many situations that I wanted to kind of customize a little bit. And I didn't find, I actually found the component to be more of a hindrance there. Like I feel like components are really nice when you have something that you know is just always going to be that way, right? Like a button's just going to be, you know, you got a a small button that's teal. It's just simple. But when you start dealing with components that have like lots, like a table that has like a table and then your, your headings and, and, and your rows and your columns and, or cells, it like. Some things uh, are left aligned. Some things are right aligned. Yeah. Text colors need to change. It quickly felt like I was fighting the styles, my base styles. That's really what it felt like. Um, the other one I created was, so I have a component, which is not even really a component, but because I use the pick a day library, I had no choice but to do it that way. Cause I could only apply styles basically that, that library classes that that library provided, Yeah, which just is, it really is not a, an enjoyable way to write CSS. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm curious actually it, with that one, did you, um, 
did you pull in their vendor CSS and do overrides or did you not use their CSS at all and just kind of look at what are the classes they're applying? I'm just going to style those classes from scratch. Yeah. So what? Yeah, I, I did not pull in their styles. I literally did not pull in one single vendor style CSS file with actually that's a lie with the exception of the uh, uh, a, like light box, fancy box, uh, like image pop-up library. Cause that was just, that just worked. Um, so with the day one, I, I basically, I believe pick a day gives you an option to give it like a name for the like outside wrapper allows you to apply a class to the outside of it. So at least you can like scope it. Yeah. So I gave it, I gave it the name, the class name date input and then put everything inside of that. But beyond that, you basically need to use their classes and they don't have classes on everything which is really irritating. So you need to actually like literally use selectors. Um, like a I lot mean, of uh, like el DOM element traversals. selectors. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, like so I got a table in there and a TD. Or, yep. Uh, gross. Yep. Yeah, so that was pretty rough. That's probably my ugliest component, but I don't really call it a component. Um, I have a bunch of form styles. Form styles are a an absolute must as far as a component goes because there's just forms and things that like take a lot of like, you know, things where you want to have a little more like finesse and control over the interactivity and things that maybe it doesn't lend itself to being done with, uh, utilities. with utilities. Like it does on one hand, you can get really far with utilities and I use the utilities to build it up, but there's certain things that it's just not worth making a utility. For example, I have a custom select input and I wanted to have a, when you, so when you create your own custom select, it's, so it's still an actual native select control, but you can style it the, your own way, yeah. right? By removing the appearance, by appearance none, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to have an image, like an SVG image of like a little down icon on there. It's like, well, to create a utility for the down icon when it's only going to be used in this one situation really doesn't make sense. So and you're, you're keeping that kind it of- as like a background image style, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And positioning it kind of that way, right? Just felt like the most logical way to, to create to create utilities for something like that, which I know 100% for sure is going to be one-off, just yeah, didn't feel stupid. worth it. Yeah, I actually yeah. have an example in the Tailwind docs of building a custom select with pure utilities. and uh, It can be done. You, it can be done, but you don't want to do it that way. <laughs> like To do yeah. like the Chevron icon, you have to use like an absolute positioned overlay that has like Flexbox to put that SVG at the end with like pointer events, none so that like someone can click yeah, through someone it to the through. underlying yeah. thing. And like, obviously you wouldn't actually want to do that for a real select. You just want to be a little select with a class done. If you were doing like, um, if your select was a view component, then maybe it wouldn't be as bad to have to do it that way. Still hard to say if it's worth that trouble just to avoid writing like some custom form CSS. Cause I, I think I agree with you. Like it, makes a lot of sense to have uh css for that stuff like i thought i know Ooh, another yeah. one that was like gnarly for you was like radio buttons check boxes right because you want to style yeah. those in a custom way which i'm not com i'm not convinced at this point if it's ever a good idea to custom style radio controls and and and, <laughs> and check boxes it is such a that's such a dark road to go down and the only other ones, like, again, like these are things that i'm kind of forced to, so i use in laravel it has like the laravel pagination that you can automatically output some HTML and you're kind of basically stuck with whatever that outputs. So I have a pagination component, which is again, not really a component. So yeah, that's, 
pretty much it. The only other one is like for like WYSIWYG style content. So user generated HTML. Yeah. yeah. Um, because there's going to be obviously. no classes inside of it. So exactly. Yeah. Yep. So that's pretty much it. Like I, I ended up with very, very little and the, and the actual CSS other than the buttons in the form, all the other CSS that I actually have in my app is really sort of like edge casey sort of stuff that I can't really do another way. Yeah. Makes sense. So the other question I had was, um, you know, Tailwind is super customizable and configurable and we ship with like a pretty sensible default configuration. Uh, but I think a lot of people who use it so far have kind of been hesitant to tweak it too much because they kind of want to roll with uh, the defaults and not deviate too much from what, what we ship with. So I'd be curious to know as someone who's like the co-author of the framework, how much did you change the default config uh, for this specific project and what sorts of things did you change and what was the motivation for changing it? Yeah, good question. Um, I will start by saying that I have zero issues with like just hacking and slashing in my Tailwind config file to make it work however I need to for my app. So I can say right off the bat that every single one of the default colors I removed other than maybe black, white, and transparent. Um, and that was like, that was actually a really interesting, that was the first time on any project, on any app that I've ever worked on, where I basically had to create an entire color palette sort of like upfront. Now I didn't do it totally upfront, I sort of worked it out as I built it, but I have a grays, I have nine grays, nine reds, nine ambers, and nine teals. And it has worked out so well. And I just, and I, um, Adam, you're gonna probably disagree with me on this one, but I actually followed the structure where it's like teal-100, teal dash 200 all the way up to 900 and I basically just follow a numeric color scale and that has worked out I, I love it it's like I've stopped fighting colors I've stopped doing the whole sass uh, lighten darken whatever I don't do any of that it's just I here's my colors that I have to pick from and then in addition to those like those are like my four main colors that I use throughout my whole app and then a bunch in addition to that I have five sort of accent colors and those accent colors I literally like that's just one off so I have a green a blue an orange and a purple and uh, uh, and that's where and, and, and actually a dark blue so that's worked out really really well on the color side of things I would say that my spacing and my heights and my margins and all that stuff has probably stayed close to the default the only thing I think I added some slightly more like some higher versions um, yeah, I, th I, I find the even with the default pretty... config, I think we need to revisit it because I think for spacing stuff, we only go up to eight by default, which I think is too yeah. round and that's not enough. Yeah. Uh, every single no. thing I've ever built, I need it to go higher than that. So, <laughs> yep. um, and I, yep. I think that was out of fear of bloating up the CSS, but I'm starting to, uh, started to not be so afraid. <laughs> yeah. And Obviously, you know, like I use purge CSS. I love purge CSS. So like my actual local, um, I should actually pull it up here for a sec. Like my local CSS file is absolutely enormous. I have a build, let me just run it here. And while it runs, um, I'll talk about something else. But it's, so I use purge, which is amazing. So I don't really worry about all that size stuff. Um, but the other thing I have customized was my screens. So I tailored that for my app. And so the tricky thing, which Tailwind makes really easy, the tricky thing when you have a, an app that has a sidebar, 
is that sidebar sort of messes with your screen sizes um, because you, depending on, like, so try to imagine this for a second. You have your small screen sizes, right? So maybe you're the stuff that you see on your phone or whatever. Yeah. And you probably hide your sidebar for those, right? Yep. So you hide your sidebar and you do some sort of hidden drop down menu, you know, kind of typical mobile stuff, right? But then you get up to this point, you know, maybe around seven, 800 pixels wide, you get up to this point that you want your sidebar to be shown, you know, when you're right. But what you have in that situation is that your, your actual content area is not smaller than it was one pixel ago. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So it starts wide, you go wider and wider and wider, and then you introduce a sidebar and suddenly your content shrinks. So what you're, what, and the problem that creates is that depending on if you're showing the biggest view of mobile, the mobile size, versus like the smallest view with the sidebar, your content sizes are actually out of sync. Uh, and that can mess with your layout a little bit. But so the way we built Tailwind is you can actually define your screen sizes as not just step like 300, 500, 700, 1000, whatever. You can actually define those um, as objects, an array of objects. So what I've done is I've actually created like my medium size actually goes from 670 pixels to 767 pixels. So that's the medium size. And then from 768 pixels all the way to 800 pixels is actually considered small. So that's a small size once you get the menu. Like, yeah, this is the sidebar is visible, but the content area is shrunk again. Yeah. That's right. So, and then, and then medium gets re-enabled again at 900 pixels. Yeah. So, so it's cool because means- it means that when you're writing your classes, your utility is like when you say like SM BG gray or whatever to change the background color at a small screen size, your, yep. your prefixes are actually talking about the size of your content area not the size of the browser window. Exactly. So you don't have to say like on small screens, this should look like this. Then on medium screens, because the content is smaller, it should look like this. But then on large screens, go back to what it looked like on small screens. Instead, yeah. it just scales in one just direction, works. which is nice. Yeah, it's really, really slick. So if anybody who's uh, listening to this wants uh, a little copy of how I did that, ping me on Twitter or whatever, and I'd be happy to share that. So anyway, getting back to Purge, uh, we I've praised Purge on here and working this way a couple times, but like my un... Like my just straight up local app.css file, because I have literally nothing disabled in Tailwind by default. Like in the modules section at the bottom, I literally do modules all. And that, yeah. like, so that means that you have hover, focus, active, group hover, and responsive variants generated yep. for every single class in the framework. So even ridiculous ones that you would never want to really even do that on, like the yep. cursor or something. You, ch- you yep. have the ability to change the cursor when something's active, for example. Yeah. 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 I just don't want to, th- I just didn't want to think about it. I, and I didn't want to have to maintain it and then like write code. It's like, oh, why is this not working? Oh yeah. Because I have it disabled, but it's like, oh, in this one weird situation, I actually want that. It's like, you know what? Just generate every single utility possible <laughs> for every single color, for every single size, for every single screen size. And right now my CSS file, obviously uncompressed and everything else is Sitting, I have a hundred and ten thousand lines of CSS. <laughs> I'm not I, like I can't. And you know what? You know what the most crazy thing is, like Chrome rendering it like instantaneous. Like it's like <laughs> it has no issues with it. Like I cannot tell when I'm doing local development. I cannot see any difference between render time, CSS render time. I cannot tell the difference between my local development and 
like when I'm browsing the actual production yeah. version of it. Okay, so it's 110,000 like, so, lines of CSS, and what's the file size on that? Oh, that's that's a wonderful. Let me find out. It's all right. Let me find it here. Two seconds. It's not small, but it's not like when you gzip it, like it's actually not like crazy either. But, yeah. So okay, what is it me, ungzipped and what is it gzipped? Okay, so ungzipped straight up is one point seven megabytes. <laughs> <laughs> but and you would never use that in production. Yeah, sure. We'll talk about that later. But let's just let's just yeah, okay. So it's, it's one point seven hundred and ten thousand yeah. lines of CSS, one point seven megabytes, non gzip, yeah. non minified. What is it gzipped? One hundred eighty two kilobytes. So already that's actually hilarious because there are sites that I use and have looked at on CSS stats oh, yeah. that deliver oh, yeah. more CSS than that to me, even gzipped. Um, I have projects that do that. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think a lot of times that happens because you end up pulling in like so much vendor code. Like, I think this is the, the challenge with using vendor styles. Like I don't like using vendor styles cause I like, I'm like anal about how I style things and yeah. I like having the own, my own control about it. But the other thing is I do think it comes with a lot of waste. Right. So yeah. So then in production, when I actually run that, so I, I run it through a tool called on deploy when it actually, you know, goes out and deploys my deployment script runs purge uh runs purge css and, and does just normal minification right like strips and out spaces and line yep. breaks and all stuff. that all that good stuff and in production my file is uh let me just read so first non-gzipped yeah so non-gzipped is 41 kilobytes and then gzipped is 8.8 kilobytes so okay. my whole entire <laughs> app all the styles or 8.8 kilobytes. It, so it it's goes really down awesome. from 110,000 lines of code, 1.7 megabytes in development. Yeah. 8.8 yeah. kilobytes is what's actually delivered over the wire in production. Yeah. And I don't have to think about it. Like that's really the beauty for me. Like I can just work knowing that all those utilities are there. I can just work, you know, locally build, not thinking about it, deploy. And I just know that my deployments script is going to rip out the stuff I don't need and it'll be fast and, yeah, and good to go. That's amazing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's with, so nice with the uh, purge stuff. Did you have any issues with, um, with like false positives or stuff that I stripped out that I wasn't supposed to. And what were, what's your strategy been and what, what have you been using to solve that problem? So yeah. Far? I had one, one issue. So it has to do with when you have vendor code that's generating some class or adding a class to your markup. So I had that with TurboLinks because TurboLinks has this, like when you click from page to page with TurboLinks, it has like its own um, fake, if you want to call it that, progress bar that it shows at the top of the page. And so what was happening is the way Purge CSS was running, it was only looking at my, my code to see, well, is this class being used? Is this class not being used? So I, I had that problem. Um, and what I did there, the, the, the solution was simple. I just basically added TurboLink's progress bar to the whitelist of purge CSS. And that was it. That's did, all I did had you to do, do that manually, like by configuring purge CSS's options or did you, yes. okay. Got yes. It. So you what about like your way. pick a day stuff? Ah, that's the other one I was going to mention. Yes. So pick a day has the same problem because all the styles that I wrote for pick a day, also got ignored. So what I did for that one is I actually just told purge CSS, I added it as basically another directory. So I basically said purge CSS, look at all my views, look at all my assets, 
So all my blade views basically and all my um, actual view components, look at all the styles there. And then I also pointed it at the node modules pick a day uh, folder and it looks as that, at that yeah. one as well. Yeah. And I think that's so, yeah. the, I think that's a really good solution for the most part. I think there's going to be situations where some library using is doing dynamic string concatenation to generate classes and stuff that it wouldn't catch, but you could always just put a, uh, put that stuff in the whitelist manually or Another thing I've tried that works really well is to create like a dummy template file where you just literally just dump a bunch of strings. You stick it in like your, you just call it like purge whitelist.blade.php just so that it gets scanned, but no controller ever renders it or anything. So it doesn't matter. That's like a good little trick for just uh, giving yourself a little whitelist playground, so to speak, to just dump stuff in if something's not working when you compile for production. Yeah, I like that. But even with those headaches, it's very clear that the benefits are, are worth it since you're able to take a 1.7 megabyte file down to eight something kilobytes and you don't ever have to think about, you know, what features of Tailwind are available when you're working. You literally just, if you need to do something that you've never done before and you thought you never needed to use, it doesn't matter. You just apply the class and it's there. And uh, yep. yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's a cool workflow. I really, yeah. It is a really, really nice workflow, and and we've talked before on uh, on I think previous episodes about Purge CSS and how I was skeptical about it and how well it would work, and and it really is it, it's it's really the way you it's wonderful. Like even if you're using Tailwind or not, you should be using Purge CSS. Like it's that it's that easy to work with that I think it's uh, worth looking into. Awesome, man. Well, I think uh, that's probably a good place to start wrapping it up. What, unless you got something else to add. No, yeah, I was just going to look through the rest of my file here real quick to see if, I think, like, beyond that, like, the actual rest of my Tailwind config file is more or less, like, like, I modified my shadows, obviously, and I modified my, modified my fonts, but for the most part, like, I think the the, the styles that are in there, or the, the the defaults are pretty solid, actually. Cool. But I, I say that, and I still think that you should have no fear to modify them. You should modify them to your heart's content, because that's the whole point of Tailwind, like I would, I would discourage thinking, well, I don't want to modify this because, you know, maybe there's going to be, you know, some sort of thing that comes out later on, which, uh, you know, some sort of library, something that's going to depend on those values. I, I would very much discourage not changing them for that reason. Like that, I, I, it's intended to be used to create your own CSS framework, essentially. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. Well, um, yeah, it's been a blast chatting with you about this stuff again. I think uh, we touched on a lot of uh, pretty interesting uh, topics, especially for people who might be looking to build uh, one of their own projects with uh, with Vue and or Tailwind. So, I don't know. Do you have any uh, closing remarks or anything? I know I get I get asked this question more often from people who are looking to get into web development, want to start learning web development, and kind of like say they ask me, well what languages or what tools or what framework should I use? And it's obviously an impossible question to ask because if you ask a PHP developer, they're going to tell you, well, go use Laravel or Symfony or something. And if you t- talk to a if you talk to a Ruby developer, they're going to tell you to go and use Rails or, or whatever, right? So it's sort of like a difficult question to answer from that perspective. But I do find it like still one that's worth answering because you're better off learning something than to be told, well, there's, you know, it doesn't matter. There's so many different options. There's so many different things you can learn. So what I've been telling people lately is if they ask me that question, I tell them, go and learn Laravel. Obviously that includes PHP. <laughs> you might need to know a bit of it. Might need to know a bit of that. And 
learn. So that's for your server side stuff. For your front end functionality, JavaScript stuff, go learn Vue. And for your styles, go learn Tailwind. And I think those three are just such an awesome combination. Not because of the it's the only combination. Um, not because it's maybe even the best combination, you know, that's obviously subjective, but I just think it's, you can get so incredibly far with these three tools, um, that I think it's just like a really, really, you know, it's a winning combo. Awesome, man. Um, cool. What's the best place for, uh, for people to kind of keep up with uh, you and where you're working on Twitter, Twitter. My last name is my uh, username, Renink, R E I N I N K, which you know, that's two INs, which always throws people off. <laughs> awesome, man. Uh, well, if people are interested in the show notes for this episode, I'll share some links to some of these libraries and stuff that we talked about. Uh, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 86, something like that. Let's double check. 86. I got it right. Fullstackradio.com slash 86. Uh, thanks to Rollbar and Codechip for sponsoring the podcast this week. And if you want to head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, that is always uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, thanks, everyone. See you next time.